Last week, we started a brand new sermon series talking about the idols in our life, talking about what is idolatry at its heart, and how do I change my heart if I find that I have hidden idols there. We talked about things like idolatry is feeling about something the way you should only feel about God. Feeling about something the way you should only feel about God. Really, idolatry is magnifying things and minimizing God. Now, it's very easy for us to talk about these kind of things in a, in a, just a generic sense, right? But today we're going to get a little bit more specific. We talked about idolatry is turning a good thing that is a created thing, something that God made, and He said this is good, but taking that good thing and making it an ultimate thing, saying this good thing is what life is all about. This makes life worth living. If I didn't have this, I would be ultimately devastated. I wouldn't want to live if I didn't have this good thing. Really, when we think about it, all the things that we have in this world are really gifts from God, aren't they? And they're wonderful gifts. They're things that we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands, that we can feel, that we can taste, that all of these things that we can experience are gifts from God. But I like this quote from Kyle Eidelman that says this, The gift should cause us to love and worship the giver more deeply But all too easily, God's gifts to us end up being His greatest competition. Just let that sink in for just a second. That when something is really, really, really good, really, really enjoyable, really pleasurable, it should cause us to say, wow, God is so very good. It should cause us to love Him more. It should cause us to worship Him more. But all too often, that thing becomes a competition for our heart. And we end up giving our devotion, our affection, our allegiance to that good thing rather than to the giver who gave us that thing. And here's the thing. The better something is, the more good something is, the more enjoyable something is, the more you love something, the easier it's going to be to worship that thing. Just think about that for a second. The better something is, because we're not talking about stuff that's that's just mediocre. We're not talking about stuff that's bad. We're talking about stuff that's good. And when it's really good and when you really love it, it's going to be very difficult for you not to give your heart to that thing in a way that you should only give your heart to God. Which brings us to what we're going to talk about this morning, and it's relationships. Relationships. Now, relationships are good, aren't they? It is good that God gave us people to love. Marriage is a good thing. Parenthood is a good thing. The relationship that you have with your parents is a good thing. The relationship you have with friends, those are good things. So let's start with that, right? Don't misunderstand what we're saying here this morning. We're not saying relationships are bad or that relationships should be de-emphasized. In fact, when you look at our society and you look at our culture, you can really tell that in a very good way, most of the time, 
that we really do understand that relationships are incredibly valuable, that relationships are incredibly important. You can tell that by one thing in the stories that we tell. Have you noticed that when when we tell a story, when we read a book or watch a movie, that when, when they're describing the character to us, and they're telling us whether or not we should care about this character. They're introducing a new hero on the movie screen. And they're telling you whether or not you should care about this hero. That, that you could see whether or not he's handsome or ugly, whether or not he's strong or whether he's weak, whether or not he has money or he doesn't have money. And they may show you those things. And for some people, those might be what they truly value and what tells them whether or not this person is worth investing in emotionally, whether or not this is a good person, whether or not this is a hero, whether or not this is someone you should root for. But in our culture, we so highly value relationships that it's not enough to know whether or not a character is beautiful or ugly, whether or not they're rich or poor, whether or not they're strong or weak. We want to know about the relationships, don't we? We want to know, well, what's this guy's relationship with his father? Does his father love him? Is his father proud of him? What kind of things did his father tell him growing up? We want to know, who's his love interest? Does his love interest feel the same way about him that he feels about her? We want to know, is he a father? Is he a good father? Does he love his children? Does he take care of and protect his children, right? And sometimes the the things about the relationship really don't have any bearing on the story itself, right? They don't have any bearing on the adventure, but they have bearing on whether or not you value this character. Why? Because relationships are important. And we as a culture and a society, we understand that, don't we? We understand that relationships are what make you who you are. They help shape you, inform you. And that if I'm going to care about this person, and I'm going to care about what motivates him, I need to know about his relationships. So it's good, isn't it? It's good that in our culture, we highly value relationships. You can find somebody on the street and they, if they're married or even if they're not married, they understand that how you treat your spouse and how you love your spouse is an important thing. And they understand that, that how you treat your children or how you treat your parents or how you treat your neighbors or your friends, those are important things. Relationships are incredibly valuable. They are gifts from God. And we tend to place a very high value, and rightfully so, place a high value on those things. But that's when we have to be careful, isn't it? That when we start to magnify human relationships so that they are more important to us than our relationship with God, then they can become an idol. When we magnify the importance and significance of any relationship into an ultimate thing, it will not only destroy our relationship with God, it will emotionally and spiritually destroy us, and ultimately it will destroy the person we love. Why? Because you're placing on them expectations that only God can meet, right? You're saying, I love this person so dearly, they make life worth living. We worship them. We worship that relationship. And isn't it interesting how often we borrow worship language to describe love and relationships, right? We say things like this. We say, he worships the ground she walks on, right? 
He worships the ground she, not just worships her, but I mean, he even worships the ground she walks on. You say, Wes, that's just an exaggeration. Is it? Is it? Or does he really believe that she makes life worth living? We say things like, she thinks that he hung the moon, right? She thinks he hung the moon. Who really hung the moon? Well, God did, right? What are we saying when we say things like that? And we, we think somewhere in the back of our mind, we think, well, isn't that sweet? Isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't it be nice to have somebody feel that way about you? To have someone worship the ground you walk on? To have somebody think that you hung the moon? Trust me, you don't want that kind of pressure. You don't want those kind of expectations. You don't want someone feeling about you the way they should only feel about God. You don't want somebody feeling like they can't be happy unless you love them perfectly, unless you fulfill their every longing. And if you don't do that, if you don't live up to a standard that only God himself could live up to, they are going to be miserable. You don't want that kind of pressure. And if you really love someone, you won't put that kind of pressure on them. That's why what we're saying this morning isn't that relationships aren't important. It's that you cannot truly love someone the way you should love them. You can't love them with a pure love, with a truly selfless love, unless you love God more. Unless every relationship in your life stems from and stems out of your relationship and your love for God. So let's, let's look at a passage of scripture. Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse, verse 16. I want you to see this story. It's probably one you're pretty familiar with, but it shows you just how messed up as families and people that we can get when we magnify our relationship with people and thereby minimize our relationship with God. So in the story, you've got a guy named Jacob. Now, Jacob eventually becomes Israel, right? And his name is changed to Israel. And, and he has 12 sons who become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And so Jacob is an incredibly important character in the story, but he really begins in a very uh, tricky way, doesn't he? He tricks his brother out of the birthright and out of the blessing, and he has to run away from home, and he finds himself at his uncle's house, Laban. And he goes there, and this is where we pick up in verse 16. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, remember that. That's kind of important. Leah's the older sister, which in that culture, she needs to get married first. And Rachel is the younger one, so she would be second to get married. Verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak, which seems a rather strange thing to say, until you contrast it with what it says about Rachel. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So it probably doesn't mean that she was nearsighted, that Rachel... Lord, that Leah's eyes were weak. It probably means that she was hard on the eyes, okay? She she wasn't easy on the eyes like her sister was, right? Um, and, and so... And so obviously, whatever it was that that is being described here, it has to do with her appearance, right? And so Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, and apparently that's the basis of Jacob's attraction to Rachel. And it says, verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, we might look at that 
And in our American, you know, 21st century kind of mindset, we think, wow, what a guy. I mean, how sweet, right? That he wants to, he volunteers to the father-in-law, to, to Laban, to his uncle. He says, he says, I'll work seven years for her, for your youngest daughter's hand in marriage. Well, what we need to understand was this was about four times the going rate for a bride price, okay? Two years would have been pretty generous, but he says, I'll serve you seven years. And we think, wow, that's that's sweet, isn't it? Or, or maybe it's more like irresponsible, right? Because already we can see that Jacob has it bad, right? I mean, he's lovesick over Rachel. Then we read in verse 19, Laban says... Because he, he, he's kind of got Jacob's number, doesn't he? He knows. He knows that, that Jacob is just absolutely lovesick and he's not really thinking straight. He's not thinking logically. Nothing else really matters to him except having Rachel's hand in marriage. So Laban says, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Wait a second. Hold on now. now. That's not really legally binding words, is it? I mean, he didn't even really say yes, did he? He didn't really necessarily agree to it. He just said, yeah, that sounds like an okay plan, right? And stay with me. And so they, they enter into this uh, agreement as far as Jacob is concerned. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Now, I always read that, especially as a teenager, and I thought, man, that's sweet, right? I mean, he worked seven years, and it just seemed like a few days to him, right? That's because I'm reading it through 21st century American eyes. And again, we tend to talk about romantic relationships in very worshipful terms. Really, I think what this indicates about Jacob is that he had such an obsession with Rachel that nothing else mattered. Time didn't matter. The fact that he was spending seven years devoted to this and nothing else was being accomplished during that time. That if you were to read this a hundred years ago or two or three or four hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, you would have looked at this story and you said, wow, how irresponsible. How obsessed does he have to be to just focus on that and say nothing else in the whole world matters but this. Now again... Because of the way we tend to think about love and romance and relationships, we think good, right? Good. Good that he's so devoted to her that nothing else matters. You're going to see in just a second that it's anything but good. Because if he feels this way about Rachel, not only has he minimized his relationship with God, but other relationships are about to suffer. So, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Now, commentators will tell you that this is a rather, and I think we can see that, that that's a rather brash thing to say to your future father-in-law, right? The way that he expresses that. Verse 22, so Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Right? 
So the trickster, who is Jacob, has been tricked by his father-in-law, Laban, right? And so instead of getting Rachel like he thought he was going to, now he gets Leah, and now another seven years has come. I want you to see how very much like an addiction it is to be so obsessed with one thing, one good created thing, right? Marriage is good. Relationships are good. It's good that that Rachel's a beautiful woman. God created her. All of that is good. But Jacob became totally obsessed and nothing else matters. And now he has invested 14 years into this relationship and now he has two wives. So instead of saying, you know what? You tricked me, you got me, okay, Leah's my wife, I'll love her, I'll, I'll, I'll be faithful to her, and we'll end it at that. Jacob says, no, I still want Rachel. We read verse 28, Jacob did so and completed her week, then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife, Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And we said, well, yeah, if you're paying attention to the story, then then obviously he loves Rachel more than Leah. He loves Rachel more than anything. He loves Rachel more than life itself. He loves Rachel more than so much so that nothing else really even seems to matter because he's completely obsessed with her. But this kind of obsession, this kind of relationship that is so magnified that it becomes deified, In a person's heart, it breeds jealousy, it breeds manipulation, it breeds anger, it even comes to breed violence. And I think that if we're honest, we can probably see those things in our world as well. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, which means behold a son. For she said... Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Do you see what Leah idolizes? What she wants more than anything in the world? She just wants to be loved the way Rachel is loved. And so now a child is born. Now now imagine Reuben, and I imagine the relationship that Leah has with Reuben now, right? Because if she's honest about her relationship with her son, she really just loves him because she hopes he is a way to her husband's heart. I really don't love you. I just hope that you will cause your daddy to love me. Do you see? You see, when we make relationships our God, when we become so obsessed with them that nothing else matters, then other things and other people in our life become pawns, become means to an end, because our end is obtaining that which we think will give us everything we ever desired, right? Because Jacob thinks that once he marries Rachel, I mean, the clouds are going to part and the birds are going to sing and the grass is going to be greener and the sky is going to be bluer, right? I mean, that's what every young man thinks that is obsessed with a young lady. He thinks once I have her, everything is going to be great. That's what the fairy tales tell us, don't they? And is everything great now that he's married to Rachel? No. Things are falling apart because Leah now is obsessed with Jacob loving her and now is having children and saying, maybe now my husband will love me. Verse 33, 
She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which sounds like the word for heard. So she says, Okay, it's because I'm hated. Now he's given me another son. What's the desire? The desire is maybe now. Maybe now he'll love me. Maybe now I'll get what I want. Maybe now my dream will come true. Verse 34. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi, which sounds like the word for attached. See how desperate she is? You see how... How miserable she is, how devastated she is, because she can't have the one thing that she wants. She wants Jacob's affection. She wants Jacob's love. She wants Jacob to look at her the way that he looks at Rachel, and she can't have that. And so now she's having children in order to try to get his love. And you would think in that culture that that would be the case, right? Because all that mattered to most men was that they had a son to to carry on the family name. But not so with Jacob, because Jacob idolizes Rachel. Verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, which sounds like the word for praise. Then she ceased bearing. We'll come back to that in just a second. But if we went on with the story, if time would allow us to, if we went on with the story, we'd see that that then Rachel sees Leah having all these children and says, that's what I want. I want to have children like she does. And so she goes to Jacob and says, if you don't give me a son, I'll die. Life isn't worth living if I don't have children like she does. Do you see? you see what a crazy triangle it is? How Jacob is obsessed with Rachel and how Rachel is obsessed with having children like Leah does and Leah is obsessed with having her husband's love and all of these people are absolutely miserable. And so Rachel says this to Jacob, says, if you don't give me children, I'll die. And then Jacob gets upset with Rachel because after all, you've got me. What else could you possibly want, right? What else could you possibly want? Which, of course, wreaks all kinds of havoc with the sons. Who, the ones who come from Leah, are not as loved as the ones who come from Rachel when she eventually has children. And how they're obsessed with their father's love and their father's affection. You see that in movies, don't you? You see that maybe in your own life, don't you? How a son can absolutely so idolize his father that hearing the words, I'm proud of you and I love you, become his very life. And how he devotes his entire life to hearing those words or is devastated because he's never heard those words. See, having a husband that loves you and adores you, that's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing for a wife to have a husband who loves her like Jesus loves the church. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to have a wife who respects you, a wife who loves you, It's a good thing to have a father who's proud of you and who tells you, I'm proud of you, son. It's a good thing to have children who respect you and obey you and love you. It's a good thing to have friends that appreciate you. Those are all good things. But they are not ultimate things. They are not what makes life worth living. 
And if we treat them like they are what makes life worth living, then we will ultimately be devastated spiritually and emotionally, and we will devastate the people on whom we place that burden. We crush people under the weight of our expectations. We're needy and controlling and jealous and manipulative and angry. Why? Because our priorities are all out of whack. Because we are loving someone the way we only ought to be loving God. We are hoping that they will fulfill our deepest desires and longing the way that only God can do. And they will ultimately fail us or they will ultimately leave us. Why? Because everybody in your world except for God is mortal and is sinful, right? They cannot be who you need them to be. Only God can. And church, I've seen people throw away their relationships with their children because they want their children to provide them with only what God can provide them. I've seen people throw away the relationship with their wife because they want their wife to give them what only God can give them. I've seen people throw away the relationship with their husband because they want their husband to give them only what God can give them. You are longing for a relationship that will satisfy your longings. You are longing to be loved. You are longing to be appreciated. You are longing to be accepted. But if that doesn't come ultimately and supremely from God, it will eat you alive. And do you see the end of the story? Do you see that? Here's what we need to learn to say first before we get to that. We need to learn to say, I will love and enjoy the people in my life, but my ultimate fulfillment comes from my relationship with the Lord. That's what it's all about. It's not about loving your wife less. Don't come away and say, so what I got out of that, Wes, was that I should love my wife less. No. No. Love your wife better by loving God even more. Love your husband better by deepening your relationship with the Lord. Love your children better by deepening your relationship with Jesus Christ. I saw just this morning, somebody posted on Facebook that said something along the lines of, the best thing that a dad can do for his children is to love their mother. That's close. That's close. That's real close. The best thing that you can do for your children is to love their God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. And then the relationships that come from that will be deeper and better and more fulfilling and more wonderful than you can possibly imagine. Because God's love for us is better than a father's love. It's better than a friend's love. It's better than a spouse's love. That love you're really looking for and searching for and longing for can only be found in the Lord. And when we finally realize that, and we finally worship that way, it changes everything. So I want you to think about Leah's child, Judah, and how when Judah was born, Leah finally said, this time I will praise the Lord. This time, I will praise the Lord. And think about who comes from the line of Judah. Jesus comes from the line of Judah. 
God had favor on the one who was rejected, who wasn't loved the way she needed to be loved. She wasn't treated the way that she needed to be treated. And his son came and was rejected and was despised. Why? So that you and I don't ever have to experience that again. We don't ever have to be unloved. We don't ever have to be unaccepted. We don't ever have to be cast out. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, we can find the love and the acceptance that we're so longing for. And so let us say, this time, I will praise the Lord. I will stop looking in things and in human relationships for that which I can only find in Jesus Christ. And when we finally get to that point where we worship that way and we live that way, it changes everything. We become better spouses. We become better children. We become better parents. Why? Because we're not putting the expectations on them that only God can meet. I don't need my wife to be perfect in order for me to be happy. Why? Because I get to be happy in Jesus Christ. And if my longing needs to be satisfied, then I need to deepen my relationship with God so that I can be a better husband and stop expecting her to meet the needs that God meets. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that hasn't begun that walk. That's what baptism is all about, isn't it? It's about dying and being buried. It's about burying the way that we used to do relationships. We're selfishly, we wanted relationships because we wanted the feeling and the satisfaction that we thought we could get from relationships. And when we're buried with Jesus in baptism, we say, now I'm satisfied. Now I'm not a taker. Now I'm a giver. If you haven't begun that walk with him, what are you waiting for? To put him first to be satisfied in Him, to say this is the relationship above all that truly matters. Or maybe you have been baptized, but you've wandered away and you need prayers or encouragement. We're in this together. And all of us have gone astray. And all of us have times where we need to come back. There's a room in the back where the elders would love to pray with you. You can come forward and let your church family pray with you and pray for you. We all want to put God first so that we can learn to love and enjoy the people in our lives, but find our ultimate fulfillment in the Lord. If we can help you, won't you come forward now as we stand and sing. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord.